How do you take down a criminal network hidden in the shadows? I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. The journalists working to expose the darkest corners of the internet. That's your playroom floor. That's your baby's clothes. That's my house. The police who hunt down online predators. Did we create the environment that they're using? No, we didn't. We didn't make it. They made it. Hunting Warhead. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. Day one of the 2019 federal election campaign already coming to a close, and already some big issues have made their way to the top of the agenda. When we asked you recently to tell us what health care issue is important to you during the federal election, unpaid caregiving was at the top of the list. Statistics Canada says 8.1 million Canadians are caregivers to a family member who's aging, chronically ill, or disabled. Depending on what province you live, it's care that's provided free of charge and with far less support from the government than you need. Just ask Donna Thompson, activist and expert on unpaid caregiving, because at one time or another, she's done it all. There's a big difference between shopping for your mother every once in a while and setting up tube feeds and ventilators. The type of nursing that families are expected to take on today is unprecedented. And there is no upper limit to what families will be expected to do in cases of complex care. Donna Thompson has turned those hard-fought lessons into a new book packed with wisdom and advice for families and friends thrust into the caregiving role. We'll hear more from Donna later in the show. But first... Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Samir Sinha, and I'm a geriatrician and the head of geriatrics at Sinai and UHN in Toronto. Sinha calls the plight of unpaid caregivers a national crisis. The crisis is already here. Uh, right now, we already have you know provinces uh, and territories that they're saying that they can't actually provide more home care, then that means that our caregivers, our unpaid caregivers, are taking on a greater burden, which means they're at a greater likelihood of burning out. And then that person's likely to end up in a nursing home um, or stuck in a hospital. So we're already paying the costs of not actually meeting the needs of caregivers. And those costs are only going to increase on on, on a massive scale unless we be more proactive now. So we need to take that seriously. Dr. Sinha is doing much more than asking the government to pitch in. He's offering solutions. In 2012, he served as the expert lead on Ontario's senior strategy. And he's one of the architects behind the development of a proposed national senior strategy for Canada. He spoke with me from our Edmonton studio. Dr. Samir Sinha, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you very much, Brian. The word caregiver is a broad term. Who are we talking about? Basically, anybody who's providing 
unpaid support to a family member or friend. You know, when StatsCan just tried to understand who are these people, we identified over 8 million people in Canada who are providing care. Most of the time, it's children providing care to parents, but it could be spouses providing care to their partners or even, you know, helping that older person just down the street from us. So caregiving happens in many different ways. And the truth of the matter is most people who are caregivers don't even recognize themselves as that. They just see themselves as family members, friends, just doing their duty, but realizing that they are a particular type of Canadian that we need to recognize and better support. What's the range of concrete things that they're called upon to do? It can be everything. It can be a matter of just um, taking someone to a, a medical appointment, for example, maybe helping to buy some groceries once a week, paying the bills. Um, it can be providing complete personal care, um, bathing, dressing, helping someone with toileting. So it can be a full spectrum of care that can go from maybe an hour once a month of support to a 24-7 full-time commitment. Based on your research, what do caregivers tell you are the biggest challenges they face? I think the two biggest challenges that caregivers face are, are one is just um, the fact that they're often uh, doing this on their own. They don't know how to access uh, the supports that may be out there or, in many cases, the supports that they need, for example, just aren't there. The other aspect is that caregiving can take a huge financial toll on on those who are providing care, lost income, lost wages. Um, it can also be a matter of the, of the dollars that they invest in the caregiving activities they provide. And a lot of that goes uncompensated and can financially... Um, weaken that individual over time as well. You have been at the center of, of crafting a proposed national strategy for seniors, and you looked at the needs of caregivers. How receptive have politicians been to your ideas? I think politicians are becoming increasingly um, receptive to thinking about the needs of caregivers for a few different reasons. One is that seniors are the fastest growing demographic in our society. And they vote 80% of the time. And so when seniors are saying that they need more support um, they, and their caregivers need more support, politicians are increasingly listening. The other growing demographic that politicians are becoming attuned to are those 8 million Canadians who are saying, I'm struggling to balance um, work and unpaid caregiving duties. Politicians are recognizing that caregiving is becoming an issue, not only just for better meeting the needs of an aging population, but also recognizing that over 6 million Canadians are balancing work and unpaid caregiving duties. Um, those missed days of work, the challenges of trying to um, meet both demands, you know, adds up to about $1.8 billion in lost productivity every year. And for a hot economy right now, meeting the needs of working caregivers becomes an economic liability if we're not better supporting them as well. Should the government pay them? And what's the best way to do that? So there's, there's a number of debates about this. One is that um, there was a CIBC report in 2017 that said that the average caregiver's out-of-pocket expenses is about $3,300 a year. For some, it's much more than that. So our, our National Institute on Aging met with the federal government and we told them that, look, if the average caregiver is spending about $3,300, we need a more robust credit. So in the 2017 budget, um, we had the introduction of the new Canada Caregiver Credit. It got rid of all the previous ones. 
loans, and it was now up to $6,800 a year. The challenge with that credit that remains is that it's a non-refundable credit, meaning you have to have enough income coming in to be able to make use of that credit. But if you're a retired individual who's living on a limited income, or you've given up your job to care for your mom, for example, you'd probably be ineligible if you didn't actually have a reasonable income coming in, if you will. So the government um, more recently has introduced something called the Family Caregiver Benefit, which is an EI benefit for folks who need to take a short period of time off. Um, And they've extended the compassionate care leave. So there's been concrete action. The challenge is when I ask every single one of my caregivers around tax season or in general, have you applied for this or that? None of them have heard about these things. And that concerns me because these are the folks who need to be hearing about things that are meant to specifically help them. If we don't provide the right mix of supports and care that they need, this will actually negatively affect all of us as a society. Because right now, caregivers are saving our government's health and social systems about $30 billion a year in the unpaid care that they actually provide. And with an aging population right now, we need these caregivers. And if we're not treating unpaid caregivers well, they can quit. Um, And this is when mom ends up in the hospital and the family says, we can't do it anymore. Um, We can't can't take them home. So I think acutely when people are talking about ending hallway medicine or talking about our future economic productivity, I think people, and especially employers, are recognizing that when 8 million Canadians are caregivers, we need to better identify and recognize them or all of us could actually suffer more as a society. So you've talked about some of the financial breaks that can be given to informal caregivers. What else is necessary to help keep them uh, able to do what we've kind of taken for granted? Well, for some caregivers, you know, caregiving becomes a 24-7 job, uh, and it's stressful. We hear from a lot of caregivers that, I'm okay doing this, but could someone just be there to give me a break, for example? So this is where we talk about a form of care called respite. Increasingly, we're seeing more governments providing types of care and support, such as allowing someone to have a few home care hours, not so someone can come in and to bathe or, or dress, you know, kind of one's mom, for example, but just to be there in the home. So I feel secure enough as a caregiver to take a few hours off that morning so I can have a a mental health break, um, go and uh, you know do the banking, buy the groceries, do whatever the case is. Um, more adult day programs, which are day programs where seniors, for example, with dementia can can go, keeping them out of of more expensive institutions like hospitals and publicly funded nursing homes saves all of us an enormous sum of money. But we have to recognize that these sorts of investments in that type of care um, will better support all of us in the long run. As well. We're on the eve of a federal election. This is your opportunity uh, to put some policy proposals in the in the in the storefront window. What do you want to see uh, in terms of policies? 
Well, we have yet to have a government to actually come forward and say we will actually create and and adopt a national senior strategy. I know one of the three parties they they've announced it in their platform. That's that's the New Democrats so far, and I'm hoping that all three parties will say it's time that we have a strategy. But our national senior strategy that we've proposed, where I mean we being an, what we call the Alliance for a National Senior Strategy, that has all the major organizations involved, like the Canadian Medical Association. Um, and others, um, we're calling that caregivers need to be clearly recognized as um, one of the four key themes, um, and that recognizes the need to provide more care and support uh, for caregivers, but also recognizing the financial needs of caregivers as well. And so we know that in provinces like Nova Scotia, where they've created a, a caregiver benefit, it's only a modest four hundred dollars a month um, to support people, care, low-income individuals, caring for other ones. That's shown an ability to decrease admissions into nursing homes in that province by 56%. So there is good evidence that this is actually a good worthwhile investment, but we need to better recognize individuals and we can't forget them in the upcoming election. Maybe a next step is to have uh, informal caregivers all join a single political party. That would be pretty powerful. Eight million voters. uh, I would not mess with them. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Brian. The federal parties have all made some promises regarding unpaid caregivers. You can find those on our website, cbc.ca slash whitecoat. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, how to meet the needs of the more than 8 million Canadians who are unpaid caregivers. Unsung heroes like Donna Thompson of Ottawa. Hey Donna, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? What a delight this is to chat with you. She got her first taste of the challenges as a teenager back in 1975 when she became caregiver to her father who had three strokes. Her second came in 1988 when her son Nicholas was born with cerebral palsy and other complex medical problems. And her third call to duty began a decade ago when her mother Marjorie Tootie Higginson began showing signs of dementia. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Grandma. Happy birthday to That's Donna's family fetting her mom, Tootie, on her 94th birthday. She died last year at the age of 96. So that was pretty poor. <laughs> Maybe I need help. Donna has co-written a book called The Unexpected Journey of Caring, the transformation from loved one to caregiver. She spoke with us from our Ottawa studio. What goes through your mind as you listen to that uh, short bit of audio from your mom's 94th birthday celebration? I think of an iceberg um, because uh, what that tape shows uh, anyone watching it is what a lovely time we had at her birthday but what it doesn't tell you is what happened earlier that morning go on (laughs) trying to get my mom dressed and her hair looking good and my mom was living in um, a senior's residence at that time and she really did need assisted living 
So this was a big push-pull for her because she didn't want to move, and yet she did not recognize the needs that she had. She wasn't eating properly. She was a smoker, and she was dangerously smoking in bed, and her hygiene wasn't up to par. So she said that she didn't want to have a birthday party, but my sister and I said, okay, but we're going to have one, and if you feel like coming to it, you can, and if you don't, you can stay in your bedroom. So (laughs) we went like two or three hours early that morning. We got her all dressed up, and we called some of her friends who lived in the building, and they came, but that was a last-minute invitation. So it all was very nice in the end, but it was just sort of stomach-churningly stressful. Wow, in the I, and and all in service of the Facebook moment. <laughs> yeah, that, that we're Isn't all that, that we're all truth? enjoying right now, and it and it really in a in a very concrete way describes kind of the the inside world, outside world, um, and 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 we're going to explore a little bit more about that right now. When was that moment when you when you knew I'm the caregiver? I think it's sad because it's it's an incremental series of losses. And so my mother truly um, valued her independence above all else. And so she started getting sick because she had um, irritable bowel syndrome in the first place. And then when she had she had C. difficile three times mm-hmm. and salmonella um, from eating poorly prepared foods at home. Mm-hmm. And this resulted in a series of hospitalizations and a difficult recovery because at that age, when you're so sick, it takes a long time to come back. Mm. But she did not want helpers in her apartment. So on one occasion, my sister called me in England, where we were living at the time, and said, I am so tired, Mom's in the hospital, and I need you to come. And I knew that was a really serious call for help. I said, I'm coming today. I am going to get the first flight, and I'm coming and I'm staying for like a good 10 days and carry her off the hook. And so I went and I did all the in-hospital care and transitioning home. I hired about five caregivers for her, arranged a complicated uh, medication schedule, and I took a plane home and I picked up the phone as soon as I got in the house just to tell her I'd arrived, okay? And um, she said, you're going to be mad. And I went. (laughs) why? And she said, well, I fired them. And I went, your home care helpers, you fired them all? And she said, yes, I have nothing in common with those women. They don't ski. I just went, oh, no. Oh, my God. You know, I, I'm thinking of my late father firing caregivers. And, and I think a lot of us can relate to this. Um by the time you started caring for your mother, you already had lots of experience uh, being a caregiver to your son, Nicholas. Um, he has medical complications as a result of uh, cerebral palsy. He now lives in a home, but for the first 23 years of his life, you provided care for him essentially 24-7. What was the difference between caring for your son and caring for your mother? There were some 
similarities, but uh, when Nicholas is fairly stable health-wise now, but for many years, he was always on the brink of a health crisis. And that feeling of impending doom, it gives you a knot in your stomach. You know something's coming. And uh, I felt that way with my mom, too. But I would say that Nicholas, in many ways, is a lot easier to look after than my mom was. Even though his needs are exponentially higher, He, his personality is amazing. He is a natural optimist, and he has no trouble at all receiving care. And his sense of humor is always, always present. How do you take down a criminal network hidden in the shadows? I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. The journalists working to expose the darkest corners of the internet. That's your playroom floor. That's your baby's clothes. That's my house. The police who hunt down online predators. Did we create the environment that they're using? No, we didn't. We didn't make it. They made it. Hunting Warhead. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You you write in loving terms about about your relationship with your mother and your caregiving relationship. Uh, let's not forget that there are some caregivers who must put aside very strained relationships with family members in order to care for them. Oh yes, that's true. And um, you know, I just shared something to with caregivers online the other day about when people have to care for aging parents who did not give parental care, proper parental Mm. care. So either um, you're caring for an abusive parent or you're caring for a parent who neglected you or in some cases even abandoned you. And people come back and give care in the most extraordinary circumstances like that. I I look at that and I, I think, gosh, that's an amazing choice that they have made. I know someone who had that experience, and um, in probing the choice that they made to care for an abusive parent, I I learned it was a little bit of, you may have done me wrong, but I'm going to die knowing I did the right thing. Hmm. You know, one of the, the major themes in the book is that it's so difficult to plan. Um, you're lurching often from crisis to crisis. And yet you outlined a roadmap that uh, you're hoping caregivers can use to regain some control over uh, a situation that, frankly, they have very little control over. Can you walk me through what that roadmap looks like? Um, A lot of the work that I've done is in finding hidden resources in communities. So sometimes with people... um, Like my mom, we found uh, community centers and libraries, cultural centers in her neighborhood that we were able to um, use that would engage her. You know, maybe there's a swimming program for older people who have Alzheimer's. Maybe there's a 
a music program for stroke patients, whatever it may be, or if you have a parent who doesn't speak English, for example, the cultural groups can be a wonderful resource. One of the things we talk about in this book is the benefit of online support groups. There are people awake at 3.30 in the morning. Lots of people Mm. are awake at that hour. And people who are going through this shared experience of caring want to support each other. And there is a shared language of being able to shortcut um, the double-edged sword of the burden and the joy of caring because you don't have to explain it five different ways and you can have a conversation with somebody who deeply understands at any hour of the day. For some caregivers, the journey you speak of in your book comes to an end through death. Some caregivers, for instance, aging spouses and parents of adults with exceptional needs, though, can decide that they can't do it anymore. You once cared for your son, and now he's in long-term care. How do you know, how does one know when it's time to give up these duties? It's very difficult to put up your hand and say, I can't do this anymore. First of all, it's difficult because it feels like a betrayal of one of the most loving relationships that you have in your life, but also because nobody listens to you. You know, there are no available supportive living spaces uh, in Canada. Um, There are very few options for people. And so you need to declare yourself an outright failure as a parent, I think. And you need to present yourself as being in a, a crisis. It is shameful, I think, that we need to declare failure before we're allowed to succeed as families. What do you think caregivers need that an elected federal government might be able to provide? Well, it would be wonderful to have a national caregiving strategy, of course. But I think that every Canadian is going to be a caregiver if they're not already. And it's very worthwhile asking your elected representative or people who are running for an elected position about their position on caregiving. I think we need to, as voters, make this an issue and make it clear that it's an issue of importance to us. We can look around internationally as well. My family lived in the UK for a number of years, and there are paid benefits to caregivers there. So extra benefits, depending on the severity of the disability or care needs, can make a significant difference to the quality of life. Thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been my pleasure. Donna gave me a lot to think about. When I look back on my own family, I think my late father felt like a failure when he had my mother placed in a long-term facility. Perhaps the failure belongs to us as a society for failing to make things a bit easier for the 8 million of us who are unpaid caregivers. Something for each of us to think about as Canadians prepare to go to the polls. That's our show for this week. We know that many of you have your own stories about being caregivers. 
We want to hear about your experiences, so post them on our Facebook page or on our website. You can also email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. And we're also on Twitter. The show is at CBC White Coat, and I'm at NightShiftMD. To listen anytime, our podcast is available at subscriptions.cbc.ca, on iTunes, or wherever you obtain your podcasts. And if you're looking for the latest in health news and analysis, subscribe to Second Opinion, the weekly newsletter from CBC's Health Unit, at subscriptions.cbc.ca. This week's show was produced by Sujata Berry with help from Jeff Goods plus digital producer Ruby Buiza, Jonathan Orr, and the rest of our digital team. Our senior producer is Donna Dingwall. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.